0: Well, How's everybody this morning? Fine. 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 Good. Any sore backs from that garage sale crew yesterday? Boy, you worked hard. Well, well done. We are spending, as Pastor Sheldon and Rochelle noted, our summer in the Psalms. And in particular, we're looking at those Psalms that help us to understand a little bit of the inner workings of our own lives, the workings of the human heart. And we come this morning to Psalm 91, which deals very specifically with the nagging question of how, how to live our lives with a kind of poise or, or peace or restfulness. Even when those lives are marked by adversity and challenge and and, and circumstances that we would never choose for ourselves i don 't know about you, but i I find that I worry more now than I did when I was in my twenties I know i shouldn 't but uh, but that 's often the case for me. I worry about my kids i Worry about our friends and our neighbors, I worry more than I should about finances. I worry about the future. I worry about myself and in spite of the fact that I know that this doesn 't get you anywhere and We even preached a, a series not too long ago on on what a waste worry really is but but it 's something that uh, that I admit I have a trouble getting past a little bit in my life. Uh, One of the things that I was able to identify this week as I was reading through Psalm 91 is part of the reason why I worried less in my 20s than I maybe do now approaching 50 is that I had this illusion that I was kind of bulletproof when I was young. Like I knew there were bad things in the world, but bad things weren't going to happen to me. And then with each passing year, and then as years turn to decades, more and more you realize that it's not just out there. It's not just unfamiliar names and faces and news headlines, but it's, it's in our own lives. And so it comes. Bereavement, the, the loss of loved ones, illness, uh, strife in relationships, financial reversals, whatever it is, uh, no matter how savvy you are, No matter how much good planning you do or how careful you are to monitor your own health and vitality, there's no way to prevent adversity from coming into your life. It's just dangerous. You have in your order of service, in the sermon notes, just underneath the, the, the title line, a quote from Shakespeare. One of Shakespeare's really great lines said, Each new morn, new widows howl, and new orphans cry. So, how do you live in a world like that and still do so with a modicum of peace and poise in your heart? That's the question for the day, and it's the question that really is raised and answered in Psalm 91. Psalm 91, read beautifully by our worship team, starts with a remarkable promise. It comes in the first four, four verses, and it says it very clearly. And then in the middle part of the psalm, the bulk of the psalm, it it goes ahead and it unpacks that promise. But it does it in an interesting way. It unpacks it in such a way that it it sort of illustrates all the ways we misunderstand, misuse, and misapply the promise. So it starts with that that opening declaration and then deals with some misunderstandings. And then at the end, it comes back into clear focus and, and talks about how we can claim the promise and claim the rest that really is intended there. So there you have the broad outline, the claim, the misunderstanding, and then how we take hold of it and apply it. Make sense? Let's look at the claim. There in the first four verses, Psalm 91, if you have your Bibles open, it it really is, it's a simple, bold, profound claim, but it's clear. We're told that God is meant to be for his people like a shelter. God is the shade that, that, that covers and protects us. You see the word shadow that's there in your translation? Same word. You know that in a hot climate, the sun is not only irritating, it's lethal. Finding shade, living in the shade, is often a life or death matter for those who live in hot, arid climates, like the world of the Bible, right? He is our shade. He is our shelter, our refuge, our fortress. And then finally it says, "...and He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge." Image after image that that, that sort of beat the same refrain. God will protect you. But the most vivid image, the most picturesque, is that one at the end. Verse 4. He will cover you with the feathers of his wings. And under those wings you will find your refuge. The wings of God. A a, a beautiful, a fairly familiar image of God. One that you find spattered uh, throughout scripture. Uh, The the image, the vivid sign of a parent caring for the young under its care by sheltering them underneath her wings. The image conveys a bunch of things. Right away, there's strength in that. Those who wait upon the Lord will mount up on wings like eagles. God pictured with an eagle's strength. There is strength, protective strength, the motherly, ferocious strength in watching over their young. But not just strength, there's also tenderness. The the tenderness, the the love, the care of those embracing those uh, fall under your care. And it conveys a third thing, but I'm going to save it to the very end. So hold on to it, uh, and we'll get back to it. But strength and tenderness. It's a metaphor that weaves its way all the way through the Bible. You find it in the book of Ruth, way back towards the early stages of the Old Testament. Boaz says to Ruth, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, under whose wings you've come to find refuge. It's the imagery of the Psalms throughout. Psalm 36, Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, in you, O God, my soul takes its refuge and I find safety under the shadow of your wings until disaster is past. Psalm 61, I long to dwell in your presence forever, take refuge under the protection of your wings. Over and over again, you see, you see God and the character and the activity of God linked to this fantastic image of a mother bird protecting its young. Under outstretched wings, now why is that important? Well, you know the vast majority of metaphors that are used to describe God in the Bible are well, they 're kind of masculine they 're male metaphors. He is the great king enthroned on high, eternal, uh, the heavenly Father, the fatherhood of god as a as a statement of care. Uh, But then you get this image, and a few like it, you know, the the image of God, the tender image of a mother's care. And I think it does two things. One, it prevents us from assuming, incorrectly, that we can assign any kind of gender to God at all. Uh, All of the gender language that we use around God, these are just human concepts that we use to try and capture or describe. But do we really think that God has an anatomy that's male or female? Of course not. So... It takes us beyond gender, but it does something even more important. It, it, it assures us that, that God is not remote, that God is not distant. Remember, for the vast majority of human history, human fathers w- were not the warm, tender, cuddly, invested-in-the-lives-of-their-kids people that, that we like to imagine we have today. And this image prevents us from assuming that God is any of those things. Distant, remote, alienated. There is a God who's invested, who cares, who protects you, who's with you. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. Verse 2. My God in whom I trust. That's the claim, right? Who is it that's making the claim? My God. I will say of my God. This is somebody who who's in relationship he was in that remember we used the word covenant a fair bit when we did that year through the bible that that rich language of of saying that that, that God has offered this relationship. He's invited you to live out of that relationship where he says, you are my people. I am your God. Speak to me in the first person. Claim that, own that, live it and love it. These are the people who have placed their trust in God, entered into relationship with God. And if that's you, then the promise is there for you. That's the claim. He is your shadow, your shelter, your protection, and you are safe underneath his wing. So if that's the claim, let's move to that next major section of the psalm and try and figure out what it is that claim really means. Because there's a series here in the middle of Psalm 91 of statements that are just so incredibly sweeping that if, if we're not careful, will really undo us in our understanding and application. It sounds like, as you read through the psalm, it sounds like it's saying that in God, you will never experience violence, right? Military chaplain, you've seen your share of violence. We wish it were true. We know it's not. But listen to this. Verse 5, you will not know the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Verse 7, a thousand may lie at your side, fallen. They may be at your right hand, 10,000 of them dead, but, but none of that will come near you. It seems to be saying that you're not going to experience violence. It seems to suggest you're not going to experience disease. Have a look at verse 6. The pestilence that stalks us in the darkness. The plague that destroys us at midday. Down in verse 10. It says, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near you. Sounds great. No harm, no disaster, no violence, no sickness. And finally it goes so far to say in the most... Well, I would love this were true. It says that I will lift you up in my hand so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. No stubbed toes for those who love the Lord. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? So it looks like what the psalm is saying is if you trust God, nothing really bad will happen to you. If you trust God, life will go smoothly. And the corollary would be if life is not going smoothly for you, it must be because you don't. Trust God, that something in your relationship has gone off kilter somehow. Is that how we read it? Is that how we read Psalm 91? If you trust God, everything will go well. If everything's not going well, then there's some failure in trust or obedience there. Now, right away, there's a whole bunch of reasons. We know why that's a problematic way of reading the Psalm, right? The first, I mean, let's be honest. The first is because that's, we desperately, desperately want that to be true, right? We want that to be the case, We trust God, God watches over us, nothing bad ever, ever happens again. Whenever you come to the scripture, if we're not honest about our starting point, what we wish were true, we run the danger of taking our own subjective, our own bias stuff and putting that into scripture, not letting scripture say what it needs to say first, not allowing God to speak. There's a bias there. We we want it to be true. But here's the second reason, and it's, it's even more important, I think. It needs to give us pause because when you read the Bible, you're never just reading a verse. You're never just reading a chapter or, or just a page. You're reading part of the grand story of what God has been doing in the world since he first set it in motion. The whole counsel of God. One long, unbroken, grand narrative And it makes sense together. And so this scripture, Psalm 91, needs to make sense when you flip ahead in your Bibles or flip back and read the story of Job, for example. Job experienced all of these things, right? Disaster, violence, disease, pestilence. And if we really believe what the Psalm says is that doesn't happen to people who place their hope and their faith and their trust in God, then boy, we're going to have a hard time reading through the book of Job. What gets worse for Job is that there's a group of friends, pastors, terrible pastors, need to send these pastors to pastor rehab school, but uh, who, who come into his life at one point and say exactly what we misread Psalm 91 is saying. They say, Job, if you trusted in God, he wouldn't let bad things happen to you. Bad things are happening to you, though. Therefore... You haven't been trusting in God. That's what they say. But as you know, those of you who had the courage to read all the way through the book of Job, at the very end, when God shows up in a whirlwind, in a, in a storm of activity, he looks down at Job's friends. And you remember what he says? You have not spoken the truth about me. got this wrong. If you've ever read the book of Job, you realize that you cannot read Psalm 91 as the assurance that there is this global protection that falls over those who look to God. Right? But here's the third reason why you can't read Psalm 91 that way. And uh, admittedly, I don't talk this way a lot, but, but there's an important reason why we're going to do it today. You cannot read Psalm 91 that way because Satan wants you to read it that way. Again, I know we don't always talk that way, but there's a reason why this psalm gets captured up and used by God's great adversary. Satan knows scripture. Satan even quotes scripture. There's one place in the Bible where it's recorded, Satan quoting scripture. You find it in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4. Care to guess what scripture he's quoting? He's talking to Jesus and he quotes psalm 91 remember jesus is off there in the wilderness he's hungry he's alone he's vulnerable the devil is trying to derail him one of the ways he's going to try and do it is by quoting psalm 91 verse 11 if you trust god god will protect you you won't even stub your toe (laughs) you won't allow your foot to strike the rock he quotes it to jesus and then goes on to suggest you know if god lets you suffer he's not being true to his word is he God promised you that you would never suffer. But here you are, you're suffering in the wilderness. God can't be trusted. I mean, Satan is nothing if not strategic, right? He's wily. He knows that if he can get you to believe that, get you to read Psalm 91 or scripture like that, then you're going to be deeply disappointed. And you're going to pull back from God. And instead of getting older and wiser, you just get angrier and more bitter. And your life comes off the rails and your faith goes with it. Again, Satan is nothing if not strategic and wise in this. But it's really interesting when you think about it. There there must be something that's so important in this text, that's so vital and so powerful, that God's great adversary would take such time and energy to try and get people to misread it or misapply it. So how do we start reading it right? What does it really mean? What... What is it that we can get a hold of here? To get a better idea of that, we're going to come at it sideways first and we'll come at it straight on. But here's how we come at it sideways. I'm going to give you a story from scripture. Okay? Lots of stories you could pick. I've just picked one of them. I'm going to give you a story. And then I'm going to give you three statements. We'll come at it that way. And then we'll look to the end of the song, which just sort of hits it straight on. Here's the story. Again, I could have chosen lots of them, but I'm going to tell you the story of Joseph. Most of you know the story of Joseph. If you haven't, here's the refresher. Way back in the book of Genesis, we get the story of Joseph. Starts with Jacob, the father. Jacob has a whole bunch of sons. Joseph isn't the first. He's just the best. Or so his father thinks. And right there's the problem, right? Bad parenting. I mean, learned bad parenting. His mother and father didn't possibly treat him well. His family history is messed up. But just really bad parenting strategy. He is very visibly, very, uh, very obviously in favor of his son Joseph. And he lets all the other sons know it. And over time, you know that that poisons a family, right? By the time he's an adolescent, Joseph is entitled, he's spoiled, he's arrogant, and he's cruel. And you see it in his dreams. And his brothers, in turn, are becoming murderously bitter and angry and resentful. And as the story progresses, they actually sell him into slavery, which was, in many ways, the best thing that could happen for Joseph and the brothers. Because had he stayed, they probably would have killed him. He's taken to Egypt. and In Egypt, things go from bad to worse. He's falsely accused by one of his masters. He ends up in prison. Not just a slave, now an imprisoned slave. And for years, as far as we can tell, decades maybe... He's crying out, God help me. And and all he's experiencing in return is silence. Day after day, decade after decade. God, where are you? No answers. But if you know the story, you know the end of the story. And you know that at the end, Joseph looks back and and he's able to acknowledge in front of his family, his brothers, and his whole country that had not that calamity happened, all the violence, all the injustice he never would have become the man God needed him to be, a great man. He, would, he never would escape that that hard-hearted, self-absorbed person that he was becoming. And his brothers, they never would have been humbled and healed psychologically because they needed that too. And multitudes of people, literally tens if not hundreds of thousands, would have died of starvation because Joseph wasn't placed in the position, being the man of character that he needed to become, to make a difference to a nation that was dying of starvation. Joseph was protected from being the wreck that he was about to become. Protected from his arrogance, from his father's loving mistreatment. Protected from his brothers. His brothers were protected from themselves and their own baser instincts. The people were protected from starvation. And all of that is going on because this disaster happens on God's watch. He knows it's happening. He doesn't stop it. Scripture never actually goes so far, for the most part, as saying God causes the bad things. That would make God a monster. But God is aware and is working in the midst of them. Now, here's the three statements coming out of the story. The first is the kind of climactic summary of the story of Joseph. I don't think I put it in the notes. Maybe I did. But write it down if you want. Joseph, or Joseph, Genesis chapter 50. Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph looks to his brothers and says, you meant all of these things for evil, but God used them for good, right? God didn't cause them. God used them. Genesis 50, verse 20. The second statement is basically a way of elaborating on the first. Really well-known. It's on bookmarks, it's on wall plaques, it's on bumper stickers, it's highlighted in your Bibles. Romans 8.28, often quoted, listen to it though. All things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. Notice when it says all things work together, two important words in the word. All things, not just good things, good things and bad things, but they also work together, right? A little word that's really important. There's nothing Pollyanna-ish about this. Nothing superficial. It's not saying these bad things are really secretly good things. You just didn't know it. That every cloud has a silver lining. You know, bad things are bad things. Let's not pretend that suddenly they become great. But But there are bad things. There's this world that God made that somehow largely because of us and the influence that we've had has run amok. And there's evil and violence and injustice and all of this stuff. You didn't create the world that way. That's just the result of our activity in the world. But even when there are terrible things, the most terrible things going on, God is still at work for good. What that means is that even though those those things are still terrible, there's nothing good about them. God is somehow bringing his power to bear in such a way that when we're able to look back one day from the vantage point of, of eternity, we're able to say that in the end, every bad thing got used by God to bring about something better. Nothing got wasted. Nothing got wasted. Which means in the end, all the evil doings of, and the evil intentions of evil doers get thwarted and evil itself gets defeated. Let me give you the third statement, though, because I think this is actually the most important one in helping us to read Psalm 91. Luke chapter 21. Verses 16 to 18. It's nowhere near as familiar as the other two passages. It's Jesus' own words. He's talking to his disciples there. His disciples are listening in. He's saying, listen, I'm not going to be here much longer. And things are going to get bad. There's going to be persecution. Awful stuff is going to happen. I'll be gone. But I want you to listen very carefully. So listen to what he says. Some of you will be betrayed by parents. Even brothers. Family and friends. Some of you will be put to death. You will all be hated for my name's sake. But not a hair on your head will perish. And in patience you will possess your souls. Do you hear that? Let me read it for you again. Listen carefully. You will be betrayed by parents and brothers and family and friends. Some of you will even be put to death. But not a hair on your head will perish. What? Are you confused? I'm confused. Did he really say that? You're going to be betrayed. Some of you are going to be thrown in prison. Your goods are going to be plundered. Some of you will be killed, but not a hair on your head will perish. What? And in patience, you will possess your own souls. What's he saying? I mean, we've already gotten kind of close to it. We moved close to it when we looked at Joseph, how he needed to be protected from a whole lot of things that were going to destroy him and his brothers and everyone else. Bad things will happen to you, but not a hair on your head will perish. And Jesus adds cryptically, in patience, you will possess your own souls. That last little bit, that's the key. In patience, you will possess your own souls. Let's come at it this way. Let me ask the question. What is it that's in possession of your soul? What is it that gives your life meaning and purpose, significance, value, direction? What is it? And without having to shout out the answer, ask this deeper question about it. Is it something that you could ever lose? Is it something that could ever be taken away from you? Because if it is, you will never know peace in any sort of lasting, sustainable way. Why? Because that thing has possession of your soul. It owns you. A career? You should care about your job, right? Your job matters. But if it's the most important thing about who you are, if it's the thing that absolutely defines you and gives you worth more than anything else, then it owns you. You don't possess your own soul. That thing possesses you. And it will drive you crazy. It'll make you anxious. You'll be up and down all the time. There'll be no rest in your life. No poise, no peace. Something happens, something unexpected, something catastrophic. Your career is in ruins. What do you do then? Well, maybe you remember Psalm 91 and and you remember something about taking shelter under his wings. And you try and figure out what does that mean? And maybe you wrestle with the idea that all of this stuff that I had invested into an arena in my life that was just taken from me so suddenly. What if I reinvested that in God? And what if as I do that I become somebody else? Actually, what if I become myself in a way that I've never been before? In a sense... That means you possess, maybe for the first time, your own soul. In patience, you possess your own soul. The word patience in the Bible used to be translated long-suffering. Long-suffering, that's the idea. In suffering, Jesus says, if you rest in me, if you trust in me, even when the bad things happen, you'll become a person who finally, in a sense gets a grip of their own soul. You know who you really are. That's to say, you may have moments where you're scared, but you're not terrified. You're not up and down with the whims of circumstance. You're a person with peace and with poise in life. Look at Joseph. He could never have become the man that he needed to be, a man of power and depth if he were not protected somehow from his own baser instincts, his own self-absorption, and he was. You read Psalm 91 in a superficial way, and you say, well, this means nothing bad will happen to me. Here's what you're really saying. Psalm 91 is telling me that all the things in my life that I love more than God will be safe from harm. All these things that actually have a kind of stranglehold on my soul. That make me the kind of person who will never really be able to handle hardship. Never be able to persist in the face of adversity. God's going to protect me from losing any of that stuff. It's ridiculous. Right? It means you're just going to get whipped back and forth between arrogance and anxiety. Because my career is going well and then my career is in ruins. Or you could read Psalm 91 as saying, God is going to let me keep all of the things that I love most in Him. We're kind of teetering on the edge of coming back to Psalm 91 and understanding what it means. Could it mean that, that in order to become the kind of person who can persist in the face of adversity... You're not looking for God to save you from trouble, but looking to save you in trouble. That's actually where Psalm 91 lands, when you hit it straight on. Have a look at the last three verses, starting at verse 15. Last three verses are kind of like an oracle. An oracle is when God speaks directly prophetically. Here's an oracle God speaking directly to the reader. And it says, and it says it quite candidly, I will be with him in trouble. I mean, there it is. And it's subtle, and and maybe it's easy to glance over or go too quickly. It doesn't say, I will be with him, the one who trusts me, and prevent trouble from happening. If you read the psalm badly, that's where you're going to want it to land. No, it says, I will be with you in trouble. In times of trouble, I'll be there. And here's what's going on. Here's what's great about that one line. Not only is it consistent with other parts of the Bible, with, with Joseph and, and with Job, but it points forward to the New Testament. It points to the Gospel. It points to Jesus. Well, how so? Think about it. When you're reading something like that promise in, in Psalm 91, I will be with him in trouble. I mean, we could take that as saying, I will experience God's presence. The sense that God is with me when things are going bad. And surely we want that. But it's a lot more than just that. When it points ahead to Jesus, here's where it points not just to presence, but something deeper. The lengths to which God would go to be with his people in trouble. You don't, You don't really get that fully until you get to the New Testament, until you get to Jesus. And there you find a claim being made about God that no other religion, no other system of thought has ever even thought to make it be just too audacious, too bold, too unexpected, and too grand. Only Christianity would make the claim that the transcendent God and creator of the universe, who was exempt from all trouble, would somehow miraculously take the form of a human being and in human form would experience betrayal and injustice would know what it feels like physically to be beaten and would experience death itself that somehow the invulnerable god would choose to become vulnerable the immortal god would become mortal at least in this sense that he would be killable he goes to the cross when psalm 91 says i will be with you in trouble That's the first thing that you need to hold on to. What does it mean to take shelter underneath his wings? To really rest in him when bad things are happening and you're crying out, Lord, why? Why does this keep happening to me? The first thing is, remember the length to which God went to be able to say, I know. I know what suffering is. But it's more just than that. It's not just the incarnation. It's not just that God became like us and experienced it. There's something even deeper. It's substitution. Remember back at the beginning we talked about that image of the the, the mother bird with the wings and and how it, it meant at least three things. It meant strength, protection, right? And it meant tenderness, a motherly instinct. But here's the third thing that it means. It means substitution, doesn't it? How is it that a mother bird keeps the young from uh, from being damaged by the rain. She gets wet. How is it that she protects her young from the sun? She gets hot. How is it that she protects them from predators? She gets eaten. The claim the claim of of the gospel is that somehow God puts himself in between what's absolutely worst in the world and those that he cares for. And he takes it on himself. There's only one time that I know of, in Scripture at least, when Jesus identifies himself with that imagery of, of a mother hen. And it comes at the very end of the Gospel as Jesus is looking out over Jerusalem, as he makes his final march to the place that he knows is going to end with a cross, he looks out over Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, how I weep for you, how I long to gather you like a mother hen would gather her chicks underneath her wings. And we read it and we think, isn't that sweet? It's not sweet. It's brutal. It's absolutely brutal what that entails. True story. At least I think it's true. It was a National Geographic, not a book of preacher's illustrations. So. Um, you remember some years ago, there was devastating fires that raged their way through Yellowstone National Park. And this followed the account of some of the park rangers who, in the aftermath, were going and surveying the damage. And they talked about a, an episode where they were walking along and they came to just the burnt-out, charred remains of a tree stump. But what really caught their attention was a sight that was just absolutely creepy, macabre. It, it was the, uh, the ashen sort of... Uh, petrified remains of, of a bird, standing up, wings outstretched, but, but just kind of in a blackened, charred silhouette. Again, just creepy and sad. And one of the park rangers, according to the story in National Geographic, par- prodded a bit with a stick, and, and to their amazement, they actually jumped back. Three living chicks scattered out from underneath the remains, and they knew immediately what had happened, of course, is that when the fire came, when the heat came, the mother did what mothers do. She just sat there, and she let the fire consume her. When Jesus was on the cross, he looks down at a group of people, and who's there? The ones who'd betrayed him? He looks down at the people who had denied him? He looks down and the ones he doesn't see are the ones who'd abandon him. The people are mocking, they're jeering. And in the greatest act of love in human history, he stayed. He stayed. Because that's what the mother hen does. If you only ever get to read Psalm 91 as saying, if you trust in God, nothing bad will happen, boy, you'll miss the depth and the wonder and the brutal miracle of the cross. I mean, Jesus is the only one who ever trusted God completely. The only one who ever lived in perfect obedience. And yet was he preserved from suffering and violence? And no, of course not. And yet in the most violent, unthinkable gesture of human hatred in the cross, God somehow is able to achieve his greatest glory. Here's how you rest under the shadow of God's wings. When bad things happen to you, there is always an opportunity to take greater possession of your own soul. By taking those things that you may have lost, investing them in what you can never lose. And as you do so, remember what it is Jesus did. and boy, somehow in the midst of tears that once were for your own life and then are just tears of gratitude for Him, you're able to say, if you suffered like that and stayed, would not move, I can get through this. In patience, in long-suffering, I'll hold on to myself. In faithfulness, I'll take possession of my own soul. And in hope, I'll look forward to that moment when all is released and all is joy. Let me pray for you. Thank you, Father, for giving us this promise. It's so easy to misread, so easy to misunderstand that Satan actually used it for that very reason. They're hard words, but, Lord, they're such important words. We want to be able to enter into that remarkable promise that's offered here, the peace that is being given here. I ask that you help us to understand it, to receive it, to avoid all the false interpretations that would get in the way. Give us, Lord, the ability not just to find shelter under your wings, but to be able to sing, under the radiant canopy of your grace. We put our hearts at rest in a world that is still dangerous and unpredictable. Do it because your son died in a world like that and died for a world like that. Do it in his name, knowing that he triumphed over the world, that he rose above circumstances and In His name, we will do the same. Place us under the shelter and the safety of Your wings.